0: To Hebrews chapter eleven, now verses twenty through twenty nine. Hear the word of God. By faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worship, leaning on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's command. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God, than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproaches of Christ, greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch them. By faith they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, whereas the Egyptians attempted to do so were drowned." Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you indeed for the word of God, which is to us, as Hebrews reminds us, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing into the joint and the marrow, reaching down into the hidden recesses of the inner man, revealing what is truly in us. And the real question uh, that it seeks to reveal is whether we have faith. Uh, I might say whether we have obedience, but that's a function of faith. Only the true believer obeys. He who receives and believes the word of God, he who hardens his heart and unbelief. So he turns away in disobedience as Israel did. Father, we pray as the word goes forth, it might search and try and find faith there and even plant faith there and then water that faith. And we ask this in Jesus name. Amen. Well, I'm not sure whether it's all that appropriate for a minister to uh, confess his own difficulties with the text, but let me do so now. Now. Uh, Hebrews 11 is a bit of a challenging passage, let me confess to you. In one sense, uh, it would be best to just take it all in one sermon because it really just has one great point with many examples. Uh, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, verse 1. That's the point. And then he goes through the long history of, of uh, the Bible, in particular the Old Testament, and he illustrates that in so many ways. Perhaps we don't need so many sermons. We could do it all in one and just look at these many examples. At the same time, we notice that these examples are rather striking, and some of the things that he has to say about them is rather striking, even if they are, in essence, just a repetition of the same point. And so what I'm confessing to you, in all honesty, is that I really don't know what to do with this chapter. Uh, it, is, it isn't the easiest chapter to preach. Uh, but here we are. And I've been taking, in essence, one by one. We've looked at what faith is. As I say, the assurance of things not hoped for, the conviction of things uh, uh, not seen. Verse 1. By faith, the elders obtained a good testimony. Verse 2. By faith, we believe that the word, uh, we believe the word of God, that the word, the world was made of nothing. Verse 3. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Verse 6. Verses 13 through 16, we see that of the, the pilgrim faith. Uh, but, but as I say, the whole thing is just a description of the same thing. The faith which the saints have had through the ages, having to pass through this sinful world, not knowing what we would find here and hoping at long last to get to heaven, hoping in essence uh, that we would endure and make it to the end. Well, what I want to do here and for the remainder of our time in chapter 11 is uh, to try to speed up a little bit. Not to take it in so uh, small a fashion, just one or two at a time, but see if we can't pick up the pace a little bit, rather than, as I say, going one by one. A sermon on Isaac, then on Jacob, and another on Joseph, and then one on Moses, and so forth strikes me as unnecessarily tedious, a repetition of the same point over and over and over. Beyond that, such a procedure would, it seems to me, miss the real impulse of this chapter, something which... Uh, strikes me even now as I read it aloud to you, in which I wonder if you noticed as well. And that is the way that this chapter presents to us the vast panorama of biblical history, almost in a hurried fashion. That's the point I want to stress. There is a, a kind of speed with which he is proceeding that is difficult to miss. He doesn't dwell too much on any one individual. Even Abraham, of whom I made so much, is just a few verses. And then we see the same thing with Moses. He seems to move very quickly through all the major figures. And even, we will notice, pick up the pace at the very end. We notice him saying in verse 32, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Sam. What what are you talking about? Time would fail you. You've barely spent any time on these figures. Unless you realize what he's doing, he doesn't have time to stop and to dwell on them. He's hurrying. His great interest here is not detail. And I fear we would miss his great point if we made that our interest. It is rather that we would see through this rapid survey of biblical history that faith was always the great thing. And its effect along these lines is somewhat lost when we do not proceed along the lines of which it's presented to us. To dwell on each one by one rather than to take them together in rapid fashion, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, and so forth, would be to miss the point in some measure. We have seen what faith is once more, verses 1 through 3, verse 6, verses 13 through 16. Those are your great summaries and definitions. But the point is, the great point is, verse 13 All these had such faith. Also, verse 39 at the conclusion, and all these having obtained a good testimony through faith did not receive the promises. The emphasis of the all these, not the one by one. And as we work through their collective witness, we feel the collective weight of history compelling us to run the same race with endurance that they ran. As it concludes beginning in verse 39, and all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise, God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. That is the grand exhortation. Let us run with endurance, but let us Let us see what it is that makes us to run and who it is that compels us to run. We are not alone in running the race of the Christian life. How could anyone ever read uh, the book of Hebrews and come to such a conclusion? Time and again, he situates our own faith in the Savior uh, in the company of the saints and our salvation from the Savior, again, in the vast company of the saints. And so we are, as we are bid to run the race with endurance to the very end, We ought to remember not just the testimony of the saints in our own age, but the testimony of the saints in every age. Consider, he says, the cloud of witnesses that surrounds us, not just their individual lives, but their common and collective testimony. What all these, again to quote verses 13 and 39, what all these shared in common. And realize, as uh, the argument of uh, the book continues to hurry on to the end, having unfolded uh, in a very detailed way the riches of the priesthood of Christ in chapters 2 through uh, 10. It's, it's very interesting to see the shift once you get to verses or chapters 11 through 13. Realize equally that as we are running this race and joining in with the saints from every age, how we join them equally in worship. Chapter 12, verses 22 and 23. You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, To an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all the spirits, to to the spirits of the just men made perfect. Think of this more broadly as the task of the church, the collective task of the church in every age. Ours uh, and all who have gone before us and all who will come after us recognize even now the way in which the saints in heaven are joining with us in this. It is all so glorious and inspiring once you see it. Look how many Christians have gone before us. We are really not such a small company after all. If you look at one particular age, which is that of Noah, you might conclude there was only one righteous man and so there was. Or if you look at our particular age, you would say, I think uh, that the company of Christians today, true Christians, is very small indeed. And there is so little encouragement to be found, which is, by the way, one of the great benefits of reading history. I might have made that point. I haven't. But Hebrews 11, if nothing else, says you ought to read history. And you ought to recognize that Christianity uh, contains a far grander number of saints than perhaps you have ever realized a very great company indeed, a vast cloud of witnesses. And very soon, he says, we will all be together in heaven, one of the chief joys of heaven, the everlasting communion of the saints. And so lest we fail to see this, the great cloud of witnesses that surround us, not just a witness here and a witness there, let us pick up the pace. The patriarchs, Uh, Let us look at them as a class and then Moses as our second point. The patriarchs, well, we already looked at Abraham, who is uh, the head of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We could include Joseph along with them. Let me just notice before we look at these men as individuals, and as I notice about them in my preaching of Genesis, that faith was as much for them as it was for Abraham, the true center of their religious life. For all that we made of Abraham's faith, and faith being uh, the central religious feature of his life, saying along with Voss that uh, the whole of Abraham's life was a school of faith, and that he as a believer was enrolled in the school of faith. And faith was such a big part of his life that he then becomes the model of what it is to have faith in the New Testament. And he becomes the father of believers. The danger there is to think, well, Abraham, in some unusual way, was a believer. But you need to keep reading and suddenly you recognize that faith was essential for Isaac and it was essential for Jacob and for Joseph and for Moses as it was for Abraham. It occupied just as much for them as for him, the central place in their life. And it was the primary means by which they were able uh, to keep up communion with God. Listen to verse six again and you'll realize this. This isn't just true of Abraham. This is true of all of us. Without faith, it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to him must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Yes, Abraham is a mighty example of that. But he does not stand alone. He stands together with all these. And so the point here, the great point here, is that there is no true religious devotion nor apprehension of God as our God, which does not spring from faith. It is impossible to come to God but by faith. And by faith, we see in the patriarchs, we discover many things which are contrary to reason, but which are delightful to the inner man. Time and again, God is calling these men, like he did Abraham, to do things that they wouldn't think to do on their own. And so, our study of the Old Testament, with Hebrews 11 as our guide, and uh, let me just say it has been my guide in preaching the Old Testament is nothing other than a study of the faith of those saints. We begin with Isaac. And again, the point here is not to dwell too much on any one of these. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. Just another instance of the kind of faith, the pilgrim faith, which he's been describing. In speaking of his blessing, both sons, Jacob and Esau, he is calling to mind the events recorded in Genesis 27. And we could even say uh, in, a, in a kind of way, the events of all of his life. And without going into any great detail here, we can notice two things about this incident. One is that the blessing of the firstborn, who was Esau, was given to Jacob instead. We know that Esau was blessed as well, and the text says so. By faith he blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. We might say, wait a second, no he didn't. But actually he did, he did bless Esau. Esau said, Father, do you have a blessing for me? He said, yes, I do. We also know it was a greatly diminished blessing, only that uh, in time he would break free from the yoke of his brother. But the circumstances here are worth remembering. How it was that Jacob came into the blessing of the right of the firstborn. He comes into this blessing by deceit. But the point here is not Jacob's sin, it's Isaac's faith. That's the point we need to see. And that's actually the point that stands out in Genesis chapter 27. And then later the narrative focuses on Jacob's faith. Isaac is the one who pronounces the blessing. Now Jacob tricks him, but the interesting thing to notice is that even once Isaac notices this, he maintains the blessing of the firstborn upon the secondborn. He says, well, uh, he, he says to, uh, to Esau, yes, and indeed he shall be blessed. Not because he felt as though he had fallen for Jacob's trick and he couldn't go back on his word. But because suddenly he realized the truth of God's promise, uh, promise prophetically about his two sons at the birth of, their, uh, of them. The older shall serve the younger. You find that. Uh, Standing at the beginning of the Isaac narrative, something he discovers, something he was not prepared to believe until this moment. But when he says to Esau, yes, and indeed he shall be blessed, we realize not that he was willing to go along with Jacob's trickery, but that he was at long last embracing the promise of God and making his faith to rest upon that. The fate of Isaac is what led to the blessing of Jacob. Because it rested on the word of God. Second, his blessing we see concerned things future, things unseen, things promised, things to come, he says. If you look at what uh, he promises to his son, uh, it has to do with things that were not presently possessed or even presently known. Remember that these men were sojourners, they were pilgrims, they were strangers, they dwelt in tents. How was it that they would know any of the things which they promised as certain to their sons as we find each of these fathers doing except by faith, a faith which once again rested upon the promise, a promise he as a sojourner had no earthly reason to believe except for this one thing that God had said it. And so faith ever rests on the word of God and ever has an eye to that which is promised, though it lies outside of our grasp and in the future. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshiped, leaning on the top of his staff. Now, this is a point I want to dwell on just a little bit more, though not too much. There's something which stands out here that we haven't seen yet. So many of these instances are just, uh, it would seem, a repetition uh, of prior points as though to add to the cloud of witnesses, uh, but in a few instances, we notice something new standing out. And here we notice, uh, recounting as we saw the events of Genesis 48 and the end of Genesis 47, an instance of something which we ought to notice since it was said already in verse 13, that we haven't really noticed it thus far, and that is dying in faith. He says in verse 13, these all died in faith, not having received the promises But having seen them from afar, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Well, thus far, uh, we looked, in the case of Abraham, at uh, almost every word of that verse and those verses, 13 through 16, except for the word dying, although I highlighted it, didn't I, when we read Genesis 48. Dying in faith. There is something about that which we ought to notice in Jacob, about the life of faith. In Jacob, we see the faith which was exercised at the end of his life. What you might call the dying faith of a pilgrim, or as I have called it before, a dying pilgrim faith. The reason we ought to connect these things is because we've already seen how by faith we ought to see ourselves as pilgrims. We do not locate, the book of Hebrews tells us, in which we ought to know, faith at the beginning of the Christian life. I'm saved by faith. I'm converted by faith, but then I fill up the rest of my time as a Christian by works. That is uh, a terrible view of the Christian life. In fact, that's legalism. If you read uh, the book of Galatians, but the whole of the Christian life is one of faith. And in fact, it is by faith we discover that uh, we not only fill up the time, but we make it to the end of our journey. And if ever we should shrink back from faith or fall away, then that will be to our peril. That will be to fail to reach our destination. We ought to see ourselves as pilgrims, beloved. We're journeying somewhere. We're hoping to get somewhere. We have no lasting city here. Our great hope and desire is to reach the heavenly city along with Abraham and all the rest. Yes, we ought to see ourselves as pilgrims. The pilgrim life of faith. But nothing so clarifies what the realities of pilgrim faith consist of than death. And in particular, dying in faith. That is what Jacob demonstrates in Joseph after him. We read the same thing of Joseph by faith. Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of his, of the children of Israel and so forth. Remember, what stands behind this long list of notable uh, examples of faith is the exhortation we find in chapter 10, verses 35 through 39. And this, I think, will confirm what I've just said about the life of the pilgrim. He says, Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which is great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that after you've done the will of God, you may receive the promise. For yet, a little while and He who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now, the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. Again, do you notice the way in which he's describing the Christian life as he's been doing throughout with these repeated reminders about apostasy. He is saying, in essence, that there are really two possibilities. Either along the way, we fall back to perdition, we stop living by faith, begin to live by sight and forsake uh, the heavenly pilgrimage of the Christian man. Or the other possibility is that we endure to the saving of our souls. We endure to the end in faith. That is the essence of apostasy, beloved. It is the fact that you give up your faith. And the moment it becomes clear as to whether we really had faith at all, and a kind of faith which endures, is at the moment of death. Again, if you look at the circumstances of what Jacob is doing here, you realize as he confesses himself, he is in the hour of death. And it is there that the transience and the impermanence of this world is most keenly felt, as well as the nearness of the future blessings to which faith looks forward. So it is there at the moment of death that we ought to look for faith, and if it is not found there, then it is right to ask whether faith was ever really present at all. Look again at how faith is outlined in this chapter. Faith deals with that which is unseen. It embraces future blessings from afar. It is content for the time being to wait and to possess nothing in this world. If only we might possess a better country. And yes, if we have such a faith in the hour of death, it will shine brightest. For it is in that hour that our grasp of this world is nearly lost. And our entrance into the world to come has nearly begun. The very thing, as I say, which the pilgrim by faith has been seeking all along. He's nearly there, nearer than ever before. And it is there that it becomes clearest of all whether he really placed his hope in the life to come or in the life which he possesses in this world. But then to die in faith at that moment becomes the strongest testimony of faith itself and a life of faith. For it plainly shows, as was said in verse 39 of chapter 10. Let me read it again. We are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. All these, he says, verse 13, died in faith. Not having received the promises, but having seen them from afar. Were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. How does he know? Because they believed to the end. And they died in faith. We should notice how Jacob exercised his faith in his dying moments or his dying hours. First, we see how he dealt with the promises. He recounts early on in chapter 48 of Genesis the promises which God had given to him. God had promised him a multitude as he recounts in those two verses to Joseph. And now he, he, uh, he notices in his grandsons a kind of token of the multitude that would spring from him. One of the peculiar features of those two chapters, chapter 48 and chapter 49 of Genesis, is that he blesses his grandsons first, chapter 48, and then he blesses his sons in chapter 49. And we might wonder what it was that led him to do this. The answer, plain and simple, was his faith. He perceived something in this fact. His grandsons, which now were before him, whom he didn't even know were alive for a long time, as he dwelt in Canaan and his grandsons in Egypt. Something of a fulfillment of the promise. Standing before him, as I say, a kind of token of the multitude promised to him. And so as a token of his thankfulness and his faith in the promise and even of his worship, as we also see here, he bowed upon his staff. He blesses his grandsons first. And then in chapter 49, he blesses his 12 sons. He was dealing with the promise as something future. As though he already possessed it. And that is what faith is like beloved. You don't find the fullness here. But you find tokens along the way. But the second thing we notice. in uh, the way he adopts his grandsons into his family. And I could make a great deal of this. And I did in that sermon. But let me just briefly notice. As we try to move in this more hurried fashion. How he like Abraham spiritualized the promise in adopting his grandsons. In God's uh, promise of the future blessing, he draws out this uh, hidden gem. Uh, And you know, I just misspoke. He did adopt the grandsons, but that isn't what I meant to say. It was in blessing his grandsons. So the adoption comes in too. I was thinking too much of that prior sermon. It's the blessing of the grandsons that he spiritualizes the promise, at least so far as I want to say this morning. And that is, he does what was done to him. He blesses the younger Above the older. That's what we noticed when we read Genesis 48. The gem that he draws out of the promise and of God's procedure is that God re- regards what the world does not. And so often the better things uh, come to those whom the world thinks are undeserving. But then we look at Joseph briefly. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of, of the children of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones. This is what we read at the end of the book of Genesis. The way in which uh, he encourages uh, the people of Israel with the promise of a future deliverance. And as a token of his faith in that promise, he tells them, I want you to take my bones as I'm about to die. This man dying in faith like his father. And I want you to leave them here. And when you return to the land of promise, I want you to bury them there with my father's. Here again is a man who died in faith, looking to the future blessing, causing his faith to rest solely upon the word of God. Not what he could see, for all he could see uh, was that the people of God dwelt in a foreign land. He did only what his fathers had done. But special mention of this is made at the end of Genesis because his bones, as I say, were a token. It was not just the faith which he possessed, but the faith which he encouraged the people of God to possess, that so long as his bones remained there, so they were to see in them a token of the future blessing. And so uh, Joseph, if we were to draw something out of his life that is unusual, he not only had faith, but he sought to encourage faith in others in the promise. Look to my bones and remember what God one day will do. And so he does it. In fact, recently, in the book of Exodus, we find them carrying the bones back up. But next we come to Moses. And Moses uh, here is like Abraham. For as little as the author says about any of these illustrations, he says a lot about Moses in comparison to the others. Uh, Abraham and Moses standing as the two great figures in redemptive history. No surprise there. Or biblical Old Testament history. One of the things that we ought to notice briefly, as we did in a prior sermon, Is that Moses represents a major shift in the progress of redemption, which is something which we are noticing as we move through uh, this broad sweep of biblical history. You have the history of the patriarchs, just as you had the history of the old world. Now we have a new stage in redemptive history. If the patriarchs belong to a single class, Moses belongs to another. It was Moses whom God used to lead Israel out of her bondage in Egypt, working many miracles and organize Israel into a nation. I think that we can say that Moses stands out as the greatest figure, the greatest biblical figure in the Old Testament. And it was for this reason that he was rightly regarded uh, by the Jews as the greatest. It was with uh, Moses that God established what we call the Old Covenant, as we have seen. And the covenant he administered through Moses forms the basis of the major point of contrast in the book of Hebrews, the contrast between the Old and the New Covenant, beginning in chapter 3, where it is said, Let me just read a few of those verses. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus, who is faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses was also faithful in all his house. For this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has much more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant, for the testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward. But Christ, as a son over his own house, whose house we are, and on and on he goes. And as you know, that that contrast continues. Uh, we find it again in chapter eight. Uh, being highlighted explicitly the contrast of the old and new covenants where he recounts Jeremiah chapter 31. Now stay with me. I'm going somewhere important with this. He says, uh, be, uh, uh, because finding fault with them, he says, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. Again, there you see, The great point of contrast really begins with Moses and the forming of the nation of Israel. Again, what we call the old covenant, it is in contrast to that that we see the better blessings of the new covenant. But if we just stop and dwell for a moment upon the old covenant, the other side of the contrast, we find Moses as standing supreme. He is the central figure of the old covenant beginning in the book of Exodus to the end of the old Testament. As I said, he is rightly esteemed as the greatest figure. Moses, our author tells us, was a faithful servant over God's house. He was a mighty man of God. He was a mighty worker of miracles. There's no one who even comes close to Moses in the whole history of the Bible in terms of the mighty works that he wrought, except Jesus himself. Not just the mighty works, but the redemption that was brought by his hand. He was a faithful servant over the house of God. And held the greatest place in the old covenant. Only let the Jews see this clearly and let us see this clearly as we consider the place that Moses held in the old covenant. That for Moses, as much as for anyone else, faith occupied the central place in his religion. There again, we see the point. So we find Redemption unfolding. As we learn to read our Bibles, we need to recognize what God was doing through the broad sweep of biblical history. He wasn't really doing anything fundamentally different in Moses than he was doing in Abraham. And as we look at the individual life of the man Moses, we don't see him walking or living by a different procedure. He did not walk by works or gain approval with God by His unrighteousness. Of course, that's what the Jew thought, and that was the folly of the Jew. They thought of the Old Covenant as a covenant of works. They failed to realize the Old Covenant was a covenant of grace. Moses, like all the rest, gained approval by faith alone. And like Noah and like Enoch and so many others, he walked with God. That is, he kept up a close communion with God. He came to God, verse 6, by faith and whatever good works he had that is to say a human righteousness sprung solely from the seed or the root of faith and thus whatever has been said thus far about faith in chapter 11 of the book of hebrews can be said of moses the head of the old covenant and this point has a way of clarifying the nature of the old covenant itself if the head so the house As we notice, incidentally, in this chapter, the progress of redemption, the covenant, the old covenant was not an administration of works. It was not a covenant of works, though it was though it was clothed with the heavy cloth of the law itself. There was a heavy legal dimension, but it was not covenant of works, nor was it a covenant of law. The old covenant was itself an administration of the covenant of grace. God was not through Moses introducing anything different than what he established through Abraham. The same principle. Remained still the promise would be realized by faith. The point is, Moses, the man Moses, realized this. He recognized that the only way to be approved by God and the only way to come to God and the only way to deal with the promises to the fathers was by faith. Moses, above all, let us see, though the Jews failed to see, was a believer in God and this was his righteousness Abraham like or Moses like Abraham before him believed in the Lord and it was reckoned to him as righteousness and what his faith consisted of let us now observe very briefly again just moving through the chapter as rapidly as we can the first thing that is said Uh, Is a bit surprising, perhaps. It speaks, uh, almost it would seem, of the faith of his parents. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's command. And yet, uh, the verse begins with, by faith, Moses. It really isn't about his parents. This verse is not so much a way of saying his parents had faith, though they did have faith. But rather that faith occupied a prominent place in his life, even connected with his birth. You cannot look, in other words, to any point in the life of Moses and not see faith occupying the central place, just as we saw with Abraham. Again, let us notice his whole life is a school of faith, even the beginning. And it was faith, yes, the faith of his parents, but faith nonetheless in his life that preserved him alive and prepared him To take up the great work which God had for him. It was instrument in bringing him into Pharaoh's house. But then next he notices what happens once he was there and came of age. The interesting thing, if I were just to summarize what we have in verses 24 through 26. Is that uh, as a man living in uh, the house of Pharaoh. There was a life of ease. There was a life of prosperity. Which he might have easily enjoyed. But the amazing thing. If we were then to extract a principle out of Moses life that makes him stand out a little bit in this chapter, the thing that he comprehended by faith was the self-denial involved in faith. He recognized that the life of ease and pleasure and prosperity would not do and that God was calling him in his calling to the ministry to take up the harder path, to join uh, the pilgrimage of the people of God, to forsake the pleasures of this world. He refused, we read, to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, though that was his right now, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God. Do you notice how he puts that? It isn't just that he chose another lot, but he chose the harder path quite deliberately. He would rather do that, we read, than to enjoy the passing pleasure of sin. In other words, by faith he recognized that the ease and the prosperity of Pharaoh's house was attended with many dangers, and that whatever dangers awaited him in the Exodus event, they could not compare to the spiritual snares that he would face in Pharaoh's courts. Listen to chapter 12, verse 1 again, because this is what Moses recognized. Again, the self-denial involved in faith. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight in the sin which so easily ensnares us. The reality, if Moses had stayed there, is he would have been ensnared. And he never would have been the great man of faith that he one day became. He esteemed the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. For he looked to the reward. This is indeed a very full and complete picture of what it is to have faith. Verse 27, he forsook Egypt, not fearing the king. For he endured seeing him who is invisible. Now, if we just follow the course here uh, of the chapter, he isn't speaking of at the beginning of uh, Exodus, he's speaking a little later on in Exodus. He isn't speaking of his first flight, but his second flight. In fact, his first flight from Pharaoh at age 40, Moses confesses as he writes Exodus that he was afraid, but we read nothing of that fear. In fact, quite the opposite when we see him leading the people of God out of Egypt in the Exodus at age 80. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the king. He wasn't afraid, for he endured seeing him who is invisible. Well, how did he see? Don't think of the burning bush here. Think of him as he's leading Israel out. Think of the faith which he possessed. It was by faith that he saw. Faith in God's power. Faith in God's attributes. Faith in God's word. He was a faithful servant in God's house. Lastly, by faith he kept the Passover. This is interesting to notice as well. Another striking instance, instance of faith, if you think of it. Since he made Israel's redemption and his own to reside holy. In the sprinkled blood. What a striking instance of faith that a little bit of blood upon the, doorstep, uh, on the doorpost would lead to Israel's redemption. A thing very improbable to the human reason. And yet, not only was it the Word of God which compelled him to believe this, but it was his ability, as we've seen time and again, to spiritualize the promise and to begin to perceive the value of the sprinkled blood, as we've seen throughout the book of Hebrews. Lastly, thinking of Moses, we see the faith of the people. Verse 29, by faith they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, whereas the Egyptians, attempting to do so, were drowned. This is something that, that we recently saw in the evening, one or two sermons ago, and I confess that it perplexed me in some ways to see the writer to the Hebrews saying, Uh, That the people, this apostate generation had faith. But let me say two things here. First, that often scripture in scripture, the part is attributed to the whole so that the faith of some here is attributed to all. There were some, even if just one, the man Moses, though perhaps a few more who did have true faith as they passed through. The part is attributed to the whole. But second, even if we were to look at the whole and ascribe to them faith here, even if only of a temporary kind, we must commend them for what they did. The thing itself was incredibly improbable. Passed through the Red Sea, Moses said, and so they did it. It was faith and faith alone that led them into the sea since they went out solely on the basis of God's word. And in this, we we notice a great distinction between the church and the world. He says, by faith, they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, whereas the Egyptians attempting to do so were drowned. Distinction between the church and the world. The church, beloved, goes forth in reliance on the word of God, whereas the world, as it seeks to go down the same path at times, lacking the same direction and guidance, finds only destruction and damnation. Israel went into the Red Sea in reliance on the Lord, and there they found salvation. Egypt followed them there in reliance on their own strength, and they were drowned in the sea. And the point is simply here. See the difference faith makes. But then uh, looking more broadly as we close at uh, the greater point that he is making, seeing what faith consists of in all of these. Let us observe this growing cloud of witnesses. Let us see this innumerable host that we have joined in running this race, not viewing the Christian pilgrim life as a solo endeavor, but as joining in with those indeed who not only ran the race, but ran so as to win, looking to the reward as Moses did and now have obtained it. These are those who have not not only sought the prize, but who have obtained the prize. And we who are left behind and are now running uh, the race along with them, the race that they ran. Let me just say this, as I've said already, we have only a little further to go. We are almost there. And so let us go on just a little while now. And soon we will be there joining this great host in heaven. Chapter 12, verse 1, once more. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Amen. And would you join me now at the table.